Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There is no intro for this podcast, Josh Brown. This is just whatever I decide to start hitting the record button. And that wasn't even a grammatically correct sentence, but we're going to keep going. I'm Scott Tilford, joined by Josh Brown. Hello, Scott. It's always a surprise. I'm always looking in the top left corner of the screen, wondering if you hit the record button yet. And every single time I always miss it and then do a shocked face. It's a little shocked face, but we're, it's video. Sorry, it's not. It's audio only. We're doing very it well. It's audio only. So it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, we just thought for this week's podcast, we'd dive in on uh, some of the comments that have come from Mr. John Garvin. I think his name is John Garvin, the Days Gone creative director, who's now an ex-Sony employee, has been for a couple of years at this point, I think. Um, but talking about the reality of making Days Gone and uh, throwing out some uh, some rather charged statements in regards to saying that people should buy games full price on day one, um, you know, resulting in a whole mess of conversation around the reality of being able to do that, like blind faith purchases at full price. Um, and also, if we have time, we're going to dive into a little bit of Disco Elysium uh, spoilers, but that'll be more towards the end, um, just in terms of a general what we're playing type thing, because me and you have both finished it over the weekend. And that game is a big old trip. Even if we don't get around to that, talking about it on this podcast, everyone should go play Disco Elysium. Everyone should go <laughs> make their own ridiculous character um, and see how that thing plays out, because that game is forever going to be held up as one of the most important RPGs of all time. Um, Mr. Josh Brown, what is a very quick thought on your post-Disco Elysium state? I had a lovely time, Scott Telford. I really enjoyed it. I played it for like eight hours yesterday, just wrapping <laughs> everything up and getting uh, to the end of the story. And I came away from it just like energized, really intrigued and going back and doing things that I, you know, didn't do the first time around, looking at the alternate consequences of some of the plot threads. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I just want to spend more time in that world because I found it so rich and so full of character. And I'm going to watch every single video essay under the sun for every night this week when I'm not at the pub. You know, that's going to be my in-between time, my hangover time. Yes, it's uh, it's one of those games where I I love talking about it. Like when we were all went through Death Stranding and we all talked about the different mad, absolute mad lad, psychopathic nonsense that was that game script. <laughs> I think uh, Disco Elysium is infinitely better written than Death Stranding. Um, but there's so many altercations, characters, scenarios, everything else in this detective thriller that doubles as a sort of psychological dissection of your like political thought process that there's so much that comes out of that. Anyway, um, to bring it all back around to Mr. John Garvin, um, the uh, like I said, the creative lead for Days gone and um, he was over on david jaffe's podcast david jaffe being the original uh creative lead whatever he was creator of god of war back in the day and also the dude that brought you twisted metal and a few other games for sony as well who's now uh you know sort of trying to get known as more of a youtuber getting a lot of different guests on and stuff and he was talking to garvin um and they were talking about days gone having this sort of surge in popularity recently and um, because ever since days gone Two, ever since it came out that days gone Two isn't going to be going forward um that resulted in a lot more even we've been talking about days gone a lot more positively than we did like a the last few years even though there's always been an undercurrent of ah that game's pretty good but it's not you know it's not top tier 
Um, and so he was being asked about that. And he was just saying that, you know, the solution of one of the comments on that, the whole situation around Days Gone, is that if you love a game, buy it at effing full price. I can't tell you how much many times I've seen gamers say, yeah, I got that on sale. I got it through PS Plus, whatever. Um, and then David Jaffe says, well, look, how are we supposed to know about what throwing, you know, f- full price at a game before um, we've actually played it? And he says, look, all I'm saying is that you can't complain about if a game doesn't get a sequel if it wasn't supported at launch. God of War got millions of sales, sales at launch and, you know, Days Gone didn't. Um, and so there's a little bit more um, to this stuff, but it's that whole, what do you think of that general statement? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot to talk about in regards to why God of War soared while Days yes. Gone hit the floor. Um, and it, yeah, the idea of just like Dude. blind faith purchases madness. I have so many thoughts about this. Like <laughs> there are so many different conversations that can spin off from this one quote. Because when I first saw the headline, I thought, oh, you know what? You know, I don't want to just get riled up over a headline. I'll check out the comments. <laughs> and then in my opinion, the comments of the context actually made it a bit more worse. Right. Because um, I just don't really understand the argument, especially for a game like Days Gone, mm-hmm. which, you know, at the time was completely unproven. The marketing came out and it was kind of a little bit all over the place. The first reveal wasn't that promising. It looked mm-hmm. like a game with potential, but not a God of War and not a Spider-Man or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this idea that you should just throw down money on an unproven project, for, th- throw down a lot of money on an unproven project, you know, $60, 70 quid now or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like that's a lot to ask from customers and fans who aren't, who don't even know if it's going to be a good game, especially in this era of gaming when, you know, we've talked so many times about how the game that you get at launch is probably the worst version of that game. It's going to be yeah. the buggiest. It's going to be the one with the least content. So why would you do it other than to support the developers? And obviously you should support the developers, but at the same time, you know, like this idea of just buying in blind to a brand new experience, an unproven experience that's not getting like really high critical scores. If Days Gone got like nine out of tens across the board, then yeah, maybe you could have faith in putting all that money down and trusting in the studio. But Sony Bend at the time, like was unproven, you know, it hadn't released a big AAA game like this. The reviews came out and they were like, you know, six, sevens out of 10. There was that whole thing where good, they, but... they sent the wrong version of the game's code to all the developers. I like, started to all the reviewers, like everyone was playing. There was a massive day one patch that made it way more playable, but a lot of the reviews were based on that outdated code, which completely like, you know, broke it out the gate anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because like I, I reviewed Days Gone and I mm. haven't stopped talking about Days Gone since. In my original review, I only gave it like three or three and a half stars out of five, uh-huh. quote unquote, only. So you could argue that maybe I contributed in a tiny, tiny, tiny way to the kind of like general idea of, oh, this isn't worth buying for full price. You can only review this what you're given though. Buying. Yeah, exactly. I can only review what I'm given. But at the same time, you know, I have kind of almost championed it ever since as this like little game that I could. And I've said, mm-hmm. you know, if you on the fence, you should try it. But this idea that you should try it at full price, regardless of what everyone's saying is, I think it's just ignorant to how much games cost, like from a customer's perspective, you know, mm-hmm. and how many games there are vying for your attention, you know. Days Gone won't be just the one game you spend money on all year. Or if it is, mm-hmm. then you're going to, you know, look at your money even more preciously. You know, you're going to want to be more um, critical with what you're spending that full price release on. I don't know. I just think it kind of, 
it just, it just kind of seems it's just like a, the same like a statement, fantasy, you know? It yeah. just is. It just it riles me up, man, a little bit. It riles <laughs> me up. There's also the fact that, you know, like like we've said, like, you know, the, the reality of the review situation was that a lot, like, you know, reviewers, including us, weren't given the final day one version of the game. It was this earlier version with a lot more bugs. Um, and that's that's on Sony or that's on whatever different factors were put in place to not give reviewers access to the game that people would be buying day one. Um, that's a whole thing. And there's also the fact that, you know, he notes that the game was in development for six years. He said that he, like, he says he crunched for six years. Um, and there's a whole thing about him because there's a whole separate thing in here about why he was fired and everything else. But in regards to crunch and the length of the project, nowhere in that six year period did it seem like Days Gone was this essential must play. Oh my God, it's revolutionizing how we do zombie stuff. Like at the very beginning, the first few, um, you know, glimpses of its gameplay were really generic. It was just sort mm-hmm. of, they had the horde thing to fall back on, but it was just a lot of zombies and, you know, you're throwing a distraction item and they go over there for a bit and you run the other way and it's a bit stealthy and it just never really took off. And then the direct comparison to God of War, like I get that in the moment you're going to pull something that's massively popular, but obviously God of War has a pedigree and, you know, like you're saying as it did, to David Jaffe as well. He's going to be aware that God of War is a big thing in gaming. Like, you know, Days Gone is a brand new IP. Um, he does know, you know, he does say that, like, say that the idea of paying full price um, does support the direct uh, developers directly, and the fact that he brings up PS Plus and different sales and stuff, um, that's a whole conversation as well. The idea that like the developers aren't being uh, you know, could be oh, better off if you pay full price and something like all these PS Plus offerings or Game Pass or whatever doesn't send as much money back to the devs as it could. Like that yeah. point isn't necessarily that elaborated on, but like yeah. that's something that in itself I think is kind of, you know, you could pick it apart. You could a bit, man. I don't, I don't like, th- I don't think, you know, generally speaking saying, you know, if you want to support a developer, pay full price for the mm. game is a like an evil take or anything. You know, mm. there are plenty of games that I buy day one full price because I want to support what they're doing. I want to, sh- I like the brand or I'm, you know, believe in the game or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, just putting all of this on the, on the fans, you know, the fact that Days Gone 2 <laughs> isn't happening because people didn't buy it for effing full price. That to me just doesn't necessarily ring true for one Days Gone you know, sold well. It sold mm-hmm. really well at the time. You know, it was breaking some records. It was, you know, number one. It had a long kind what of like shelf shocked? life. Like we Sorry? were shocked when we were shocked when yeah. the sequel, you know, wasn't coming true. Because to, to me or to us or whatever, all those, I mean, maybe that's just the job of really effective PR, but it felt like Days Gone was this massive success in the end. It was like number one for ages, big old zombie game. You know, it, it felt like it did way better than it actually did. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it did better than people expected, especially for a game that had those reviews. You know, it didn't completely bomb and it felt like, you know, there was a definitely an audience there. And even in the review that, that I did, you know, there were people in the comments being like, what, this is a really good game. Everyone should buy it and stuff. <laughs> Obviously, there was a fan base there. And that was even acknowledged in Jason Schreier's um, Bloomberg report from the other week. Um, he said that the reason that the game wasn't getting a sequel wasn't necessarily because it didn't sell very well. It was more uh, the um, the troubled development and the mm. fact that they kind of like, you know, were worried that it didn't have potential or it would cost them too much money in the long run or that it was going to happen again and repeat history. So this idea that, you know, it's on the it's entirely on the fans just to me doesn't really make sense because yeah. fans can vote with their wallets to a point. But at the end of the day, it's the companies that are making the decisions. It's the likes of EA or whoever telling us that single player games don't matter. You know what I mean? Like we, no one asks for that, but they just come <laughs> out, pull that out of their ass. And then mm. we have to live with it for a little bit until a game like Jedi Fallen Order sells really well and they have to take notice. But, you know, it's just, it's, I, think I just the... don't like that. It's all like, it's, I don't know, man. I don't know. It feels very much like the perspective of someone from inside the industry rather mm. than like, someone on the outside which i guess you know yeah man, well, i think not, not merit 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stuff with um, like, because he like obviously the the comment that he makes about the fans like comes out of like the general conversation around how much of an uptick in positivity there is now. So I guess if you were if you were him, if you were the creative director, you've spent six years on the project, and now there's a massive surge in popularity, or now there's this sort of positive word of mouth that maybe wasn't there at launch. It especially wasn't there at launch before the day one patch stuff. Um, and like you know the reviews were lots of three out of tens and six out of tens. It kind of does feel like he's like a bit bitter about it, which I I can empathize with in terms of just being like, what the hell? Like you guys didn't give me this energy before and i guess maybe that's where that's coming from but like there's also a massive oh god i was gonna say there's a massive wing of this report about his personality but you should weigh in on that other stuff yeah it's just like you know if there is a bit of bitterness there or a bit of annoyance that suddenly it's really popular now that to me is just kind of like so what like obviously yeah it's this is, the money isn't going to go directly to the developers but you're still mm-hmm. cultivating a fan fan base you still have a game that resonates with so many people and to me you know obviously i'm not like a money man a businessman but to me the fact that that happens at all feels like such a miracle the fact that the game came out had a fan base at launch mm-hmm. and that's only grown while it's dropped in price while it's going to ps plus ps plus like that truly is something to champion you know even if it yeah. doesn't result in these mammoth sales and stuff it's resulting in you know a great community it's resulting in your game getting in the hands of so many people and people ultimately enjoying it they're embracing it mm-hmm. it's not like they're getting out on ps plus and then saying actually this is really bad and i can't be asked with it they're getting it on ps plus and thinking oh my god i can't believe i didn't play this beforehand and you know i think that's Surely that's good. Surely that's a good thing. I don't <laughs> see how in any world that is a bad thing, especially like you said, you know, they're getting the best version of it. They're getting um, it without the pressure of having to drop 60 pounds on it unproven. Mm-hmm. They've had a couple of years now of, you know, good word of mouth. You know, this game, it, this game now isn't in the same state it is culturally or as a piece of technology as it was in 2019. You know, like this game hasn't been in a vacuum this entire time. It's cultivated a fan base. It's cultivated word of mouth. And I just, I just don't see how that's bad. I just don't see no, how that's I, bad. I just, there's a lot of stuff in here that just feels like he's annoyed uh, that he is quite bitter that he spent this much time on the project. It didn't take off as much as it should have, in his words, it should have done. Um, and you know, there's one bit where he, he mentions that they, you know, he worked on Siphon Filter as well, Siphon Filter Dark Mirror on PSP, which at separate point is a brilliant game. Like the only <laughs> completely recommendable Siphon Filter the game in 2021 um if you're going to be able to somehow access it on a psp and um, he says that you know one of the biggest most disheartening things with that is that because the ps and um, the pris piracy was so rampant on the psp and um, at one point then um, they pulled up the statistics and realized that there was 200,000 copies of the game being downloaded on like different pirate sites and he literally says that's money that could be in my pocket instead and i think mm-hmm. that like that maybe that's another sort of factor that goes into it is just this sort of like like what could have been kind of thing if it all rolls into this um you know like uh, in hindsight sort of um, retrospective look on the game's development and where it is and the like every i mean like i said if you're that dude then you've been through all this stuff but yeah the, the whole idea of just throw 60 pounds at it or 60 dollars at it and where was that and why why didn't you guys care then and it's like well there's a million factors pretty clearly outlining why we didn't care about the the generic motorbike open world game um, and totally. that's from two people who really like it. But like, yeah, that's I, think, it. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And, you know, I don't think either of us are saying, you know, don't support the developers. Obviously, no. please support the developers if, if you can. But that's always the caveat for me. It's if you can, if you don't right. have 60 quid to spend on a brand new game that you're not sure you're going to like, don't spend it. it you don't <laughs> and owe, the reviews are like, telling you not to do it. And the well. reviews are telling you not to. Like, yeah, like you don't owe these companies anything. Mm. Like you shouldn't be guilted into buying a game or supporting something if you don't have, you know, 
that the financial backing to do so or even the want to do so you know like i said like you don't owe these companies anything even if we like everything that they you know things they do or games they put out and stuff and i just mm-hmm. think yeah i think that's where i kind of like draw the line you know on that potential bitterness where it's like yes i fully agree support the devs if you can you know i'm sure every developer in the world wants their game to be a god of war when it first comes out wants mm. everyone to buy it full price and love it but not every game does that not every game is that much of a miracle mm. and it's still surely okay if people do manage to experience it ps plus because you know if someone gets it free and free on playstation plus and um, that might be extra an extra player that you would never have captured otherwise yeah like your work is still gonna be seen yeah yeah even if it's gone down in price to you know 20 pounds or whatever people might still be averse to playing it and might have said you know no to it but now that they can get it as part of a service Mm -hmm. you know they're ultimately going to experience something that i mean they might not have even paid for anyway so it's not like all of these people playing it now are people who would have played paid um you know 60 pounds at launch or whatever it just i don't think it's that kind of one-to-one no, I mean, I think the, the whole video that he's in, it's like a four and a half hour interview, which I've not, I've only looked at the very small amounts of it. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a, there's a lot in here. Like I, I was saying to you before we recorded that I'm always fascinated in what, like from the David Jaffe side, like, you know, whatever in regards to how he's now presenting himself. Like I'm still fascinated by an ex top tier Sony dev who brought us God of War Twisted Metal. I'm curious what his thoughts on the, the procedures are behind the scenes and same in uh, Garvin's case. Um, but the, the reality of the statements that, um, that in Garvin's case he's coming out with are... <laughs> drawing a lot of ire for like um, pretty obvious reasons. The other thing um, that I sort of mentioned a couple of times in regards to the um, the interview is that he talks about like, you know, why he was fired and what, like, sorry, why he left the project and never left Sony and um, and talks about the reality of developing days gone. And so there's a couple of quotes in here. Um, he says, when you're in development, it's a nonstop pressure with milestones, profitability and people management. And to be honest, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is we had a few heated arguments over the last year or so. And I would end up yelling and saying something like, just give me a package so I can get the F out of here or something like that. Um, he says when it was just him and Chris Reese in a small studio, that kind of heatedness is fine uh, or was fine. But by the time you get to a hundred person studio, you can't have one of the directors losing their temper. He says, I'm not a great people person anyway. And it's not like they didn't try. I was put through training a couple of times. Like, Hey, here's how you go out to lunch with people more and be a better director. And he says, I just kind of sucked at all that. And um, the reason I wanted to focus on this stuff is the, you know, it's a whole, that's a whole sort of like side note um, to the overall point of the comments on, you know, supporting games and developers and stuff. But that idea of the auteur uh, creator, I feel like that's sort of like seldom seen anyway. Not necessarily that anger and commanding and dictatorship over a creative process should be seen as auteurship, but um, that whole idea of, you know, you think of the Joseph Farises, the Hideo Kojimas, um, they are seldom seen now. And I kind of wonder if there's any space for that in, or just as a conversation point, like in creativity anymore, because if you go back through film history or some game history, there are projects that were led by insane creative leads that were like this is the way this thing should be um what's your thoughts on that stuff about the way that he sort of presents himself in these comments um you know what immediately reminds me of at the start of the year i read this book called difficult men right okay i'm gonna go off topic very slightly here i was gonna bring in both well in the foo fire so carry on (laughs) (laughs) it was about the um the showrunners behind some of like the most 
iconic um, turn of the century shows like mm-hmm. Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad and stuff like that. And nine times out of 10, like the dudes in charge would have been these creative, charged, aggressive types who would like throw their weight around, you know, be quite difficult to work with. But everyone would be like, oh, well, he's a genius. So we're just going right. to go with it. You know, obviously he's going to make some people cry. He's going to be a dick to the executives. <laughs> you, things might be late to go over budget, but he's a, he's a genius. So we're going to stick to him because his creative vision is driving it. It's like I just feel like we've kind of like gotten away from that as the years have gone on. And that's not a very healthy working environment, especially in, you know, the video game world where you have like, you know, these kind of like bust ups where there are potentially thousands of employers, employees um, on the line, you know, waiting for like these creative decisions to be made. I feel like video games in particular are way too kind of like massive in scale to kind of like have these kind of pissing contests almost. And I think that um, the director actually does acknowledge this in his comments. You know, he says this type of behavior was maybe fine when you were a smaller studio and there was fewer people answering to you. But once you're in charge of like this behemoth and you've got all these different departments like waiting to go, waiting for direction and stuff, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've seen, you know, not not the extent of quote-unquote bad behavior but to the extent of mismanagement like that's been the constant thing that pops up every single time a game fails you know whether it's anthem mass effect andromeda destiny or whatever mm-hmm. it always feels like it because it comes from the very top and like those ex- executives not having a vision for the game not having a proper plan for the game and all of these different employees just kind of like feeling rudderless and not knowing what to do or where they are mm-hmm. and then having to scramble right at the very end so i do kind of feel like you know the age of the auteur or whatever when it comes to gaming is almost impossible because gaming is just such a collaborative medium and yes Mm -hmm. you need a strong creative director or you know team of directors to lead a project ultimately but at the same time you know there are too many moving parts for one person to kind of like take control of everything thoroughly you know if that makes sense unless you're like a smaller team hey everyone I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
It's interesting because like if I like I was thinking of Tim Schafer when you were describing that because uh, if you I've been mean, totally massive recommendation to anyone listening to this double fine adventure it's all on YouTube now um, is the um, the documentary of how they made Broken Age and you get to see Tim Schafer's entire process where he like in the best way possible refuses to be rushed where he's just mm-hmm. sort of like there's an art department waiting on him there's like the like the script refinement area there's all these different um, parts of the double fine that are waiting on his input and he's just sitting with his notepad and just sort of like just waiting and just relaxing and like I'll get there when I get there like that's the process yeah. we have don't worry you're all going to get paid it's fine um and that's i don't like an interesting sort of talking point as a middle ground um because you know hideo kojima on the making of a death stranding he's dipping into every individual studio in person making sure everything's being done to a specific um you know vision and you can feel that in the final product like there's a lot of tim yeah. schaefer in broken age but there's a hell of a lot of hideo kojima in death stranding where like to a point where it feels like this uncompromising thing um, and playing through it takes two. Like it's Joseph Farris is still sort of flexing himself at the minute, but I feel like there's quite a lot of him in there in terms of the way that he thinks of game mechanics. And like, well, why can't yeah. we just have this random game mechanic here? Why can't we just have a basketball mini game for ten seconds and we'll do something else? And his there's a lot of him coming through. Um, but that whole thing about you know for to contrast it with Bioware, uh, once Casey Hudson left, like a lot of people were pinning a lot of Mass Effect's hopes on him. And once Casey Hudson left, and there was all the Kotaku reports about, like you said, how rudderless and aimless a lot of the development was um that team couldn't bring itself together so it's like well we do need a middle ground either you need something like the Schaefer where it's understood that someone will wait as long as it takes to get the creative spark um but that can also go too far in that direction with someone like George R. R. Martin where it's just he's sitting and waiting everyone's (laughs) waiting and we're still waiting it's like years and years and years later um but I think that's interesting like trying to pair off like the idea of the auteur like you know how depending on how assured, how assured you are of a certain vision, like, you know, what are your parameters in regards to forcing a team to do that thing? Um, mm-hmm. And there are horror stories from, from like film, gaming, whatever. Um, but like he says, like, you know, in a small studio, it's more acceptable because it's, maybe there's a closer relationship between those teams. But I don't know, like, how do you, how do you think it should be going forward? Because I think that at the minute, there's so many, you know, there's so many bland fest, four person squad co-op nothingness games to me. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I mean, yeah, I would rather have more auto stuff, but it depends what just, happens behind the scenes. Yeah, that's it, man. Like, it's just so nuanced. Like, of course, I'm mm. not against like a single creative vision, kind of like taking control of a project if that vision is really good and it's really considered. I suppose it's just how you do it and how you kind of like your your the staff overall is sort of treated. Like, if you're mm. waiting on someone's input and they're being a dick about it that's not a really healthy working environment. But if you understand that, you know, the game needs to be good, everyone's on the same page, everyone's like interested and passionate about what they're making, then you understand that you need that kind of like creative space to try things and fail perhaps. But I don't know how conducive that mentality is to the realities of like big budget gaming where everything's crunched to bits already. You've already got Mm. these impossible milestones to hit. I don't know. It's, It's the age old thing, isn't it? Like, that kind of like creative mentality clashing against the whims of the faceless executives who need a milestone hit by here and need a trailer out by here or a demo out by here and the kind of like friction between that and gaming more than any other medium just feels like it's compressed with all of these different voices that I I personally have no answer Scott I I imagine running (laughs) a video game company is hard as balls yes and you know when it comes to like the idea of the auto I think as long as it, it, it functions smoothly and people are prepared for that. And it's not 
coming at the detriment of the working environment or the hours people have to put in or even like the relationships between the employees or between the designers and the writers or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think you can still, obviously there's still space for that and we can embrace them, you know, the likes of your Joseph Farris, the likes of your Hideo Kojima, Tim Schaaf or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, like everything, it just, it's, it's just such a nuanced conversation. I can't really, you know, say like, this is the hard and fast rule of this is how game development should be because oh, no, every I think, studio's different, every project's different, you know? Yeah, if we, if we knew, I mean, if any, if anyone, if anyone in the world knew the specific <laughs> way to make the best games, that would be like the billion dollar question. But I think that going forward, it is uh, just things like this sort of add to that overall conversation on how even the creation of video games has changed. I feel like we had a lot more um, auto-driven stuff across the 2000s where, and in, the, in a bigger, bigger budget sense, whereas a lot of the auto stuff now is smaller it's indie focused stuff um which is why just for me i don't know if i'm the only one flying the little joseph farah's flag but i love the dude and watching it something like it takes two i was like i'm so glad this got made there's so much character and charm in here um you know in the script writing it's not perfect but it is very him and just things like that where i'm like i'm it's good to see those things um but i think that yeah i mean like there's a lot of stuff to roll in in regards to like the conversations around people like um john garvin the insects that they can provide even if they are all over the place the um conversation Conversations that come from them are still pretty interesting. We should do a five-minute bant on Disco Elysium, sir, because there's a little bit of podcast time left. Um, and I think serving the fact that Disco Elysium has got a like I just it's a cult classic already. It's like a mm, sort of, yeah. you know, it's it's everyone who's played it has gone, oh my god, this game. Um, and it's just, you know, right now in this particular point in the podcast, you should go play Disco Elysium if you can get access to it. It's on PS4, PS5, PC. Um, and if you're sticking around, I'm gonna assume that you've not bothered about spoilers, or maybe you've finished it, but we'll spend the last few minutes talking about that stuff. Um, both of us have finished this game. What was your immediate thought when you hit credits? Uh, that I wanted to play it again, that I wanted to go <laughs> through it and see what I missed. I just thought the way it wraps up specifically, I thought was just like perfect. You know, mm. I was a bit worried that it might not nail the landing, especially in the run up to it. But like the final two or so hours of that game, I just think are like some of the best RPG game moments like I've ever <laughs> managed to experience. Everything comes together for me, like the choices you've made, the way mm. you've built the character, the relationships between the characters. And, you know, throw on top of that, the lush score, the setting, and, you know, the kind of like bow that's on everything where you essentially, you know, all of your actions throughout the game, everything that you've said kind of like goes on trial, essentially. And you're kind of like taken apart and assessed as a police officer and a person. I just thought that was so neat and so interesting. And, yeah, I, I enjoyed it, man. I really thought it was good. <laughs> the stuff with them, um, because the thing is like, it's got, there's so much to it where I couldn't, I was just blown away by how many different, like you said, there's so many choices. There's so many repercussions. There's one bit at the end where you're facing off against these three dudes that are going to wipe out um, some of the workers behind you or some of the um, the Hardy boys or whatever behind you. And you need to get in the middle. And that, I remember telling you like without spoilers that that entire interaction hinged on an item that I just happened to have in my inventory equipped at the yeah. time, which was the chest plate of the armor that you can pick up so if you just don't have that i think a main character gets hospitalized like kim gets hospitalized and then you get to go down this whole route of you deputize kuno and take him with you and that, that's how the <laughs> final thing plays out the fact that that whole thing can can pivot on the equipping an item and that can completely change the tone and everything else of the way that that ending plays out um is insane to me um but also incredibly impressive like um yeah my thing was just kind of feeling very overwhelmed through most of it in a mostly positive way and the thing yeah. i was going to say when you said about like you know you got to the end and you just want to play it again um i had that feeling like the same i actually restarted it immediately and then just played it as a big old mess uh, and just was a complete i was i was snorting rails i was knocking kuno to the floor i was doing <laughs> 
do whatever I could. And uh, and then I had the realization of like, oh God, I can't restart an RPG straight away. And I sort of like yeah. moved away from it a little bit. But um, overall, like, I think the one of the things I would also, I would love to like, you know, get out there is that I think it totally works as a baseline detective thriller. Like there are lots of really cool uh, revelations and oh my God, this piece of evidence changes everything. Or this character was also you know, standing over here when this happens, so they actually saw something and they know more than they're letting on or whatever. And I think that that sort of like free form exploration really factors into that. Like you, yeah. I haven't felt that since the Sherlock games and even they are resigned to way smaller spaces, but you know, you find something out and it's on you to have the agency to run up to that NPC and be like, well, I've got this and you didn't tell me about this. And now, you know, you're not yeah. telling me something and grill them and get it out of them. And so I don't know what the, if you would say what the most, you the most like strand of the game you got out of, like what, what, which thing you gravitated towards. Mine was the detective work, but there's obviously so much in there of the thought processes, the political yeah. stuff, the end. Like, I, I like the conversation stuff too, but it's, it's definitely, for me, it was definitely the pull of what's actually happening in the case. How do I solve this murder mystery? I mean, when, you, when you're doing that case and you sort of, like you said, you know, you're getting leads, you're following them up and you mm. start breaking the case, like that feels awesome. And I love <laughs> like exactly what you said there. The thing that, you know, just blew me away was how important everything is, even if it doesn't seem important. Like you can have, there's literally a bit where you try to grab some flowers and it's just a throwaway thing. You can either grab them or you can acknowledge them. And then that comes back around at the end. It, it It's meaningful in every kind of like storyline, no matter how um, detached from the main case it might seem, it all has a payoff. It all comes mm. back around. And I just thought that was really you know the, the biggest thing i can praise it for is that it took a storyline that i did because i was invested in one of the characters this is the lena storyline yeah. with the um, cryptozoologists um <laughs> so uh, insane, story, yeah. i know yeah yeah, yeah. um I, I did it because i liked her as a character but i couldn't care less about like the lore of it really i mm. was a bit bored during it but that pays off towards the end with a big reveal and i was like that was time well spent that is incredible and i love that stuff uh. for me it was the uh, i know we kind of like differ on this but i enjoyed the supernatural influences of it i liked pumping um, points into the Inland Empire perks so you can have this kind of intuition with the world, like past, present, and future. Mm. And you can kind of like get on other wavelengths. Like I loved all the stuff about the pale in like the potential Armageddon that is coming and stuff like that. And like all of that material, I just thought was kind of... Um, deeply disturbing in a way man deeply this disturbing. is what's fascinating because i didn't i have no idea what that is my my dude was <laughs> the most like straight laced like you know i'm because i was i kind of played it like i because we've all been on many a night out and we've all woken up feeling horrible and i was like if i was a detective and i woke up feeling horrible i wouldn't want to go anywhere near the stuff anywhere near the alcohol the booze like any of the drugs i just want to be the best detective i can be because oh my god i've hit rock bottom and i'm bouncing back up again and kim is like uh, kim kitsuragi like is your you know he's been assigned to you and he helps you out and everything and he's such a good dude like he just want they tell you in the the voiceover like he'll do anything for you it says something like you have an inbuilt feeling that this guy will be there for you and stuff like that yeah and so for me i was like i'm gonna go i'm gonna be the most like best cop ever and i'm gonna sort this out and let's redemption story and like whatever so i didn't the the pale stuff i think you find out from joyce i think he said is that where you get the first like taste of it that's where you get like yeah like the bulk of it there are other characters but that's like the big bulk right. of what it is and what's it about and stuff. so i whatever that is i did i don't even know what the pale is and or if i do i, <laughs> I my little brain has forgotten about it but like for the most part i was just chasing leads you know crunching evidence like how do we do this and that and occasionally doing like quirky stuff for the banner and um, because you'll get random little uh, options during dialogue to just say something that's hilarious or i'd be curious what something's going to lead to but for the most part, I was just pursuing it as this like, you know, grizzled 
detective with a past. Um, you know, there's a reason I'm like out of it in Martinez. I'm, you know, everything that's led to that moment, kind of like Max Payne-ish, I guess. Um, and mm. sort of going down that route a little bit. Um, so I didn't discover that, and that's what is mind blowing. Like we mentioned, the you know the armor plate dictating whether a character, um, I guess they still survive, but whether a character is available at the end, and the idea of stuff like that, where like you put points into the inland, rev- inland revenue you put points into the <laughs> <laughs> the irs the, the hmrc isn't the inland revenue the tax men that's the american tax one fantastic yeah. um you know because you put points into the uh inland empire stuff which meant that you could have a conversation with a chair or whatever it is and it's all supernatural <laughs> whereas to me it was all grounded and it was like it was semi-grizzly like you know for the most part um but there is like some little element i mean i I spent most of one of my Sundays in real life hanging out with a bunch of ravers in a church, getting talking to the void in the middle of the room. So it's like that yeah. stuff happened too. Um, but I think the the fact that it can deviate so much is one of the reasons that it's always going to be held up as this insane, just ridiculous choose your own adventure style RPG. Definitely. Like you can bring so much to it. And I think, like you said, personalize it in such an interesting way where you can have completely different stories, more or less, like Mm. whatever you do or don't interrogate or find interesting, you can discard it. And obviously like there's a big picture that includes everything, but you can just sort of focus on specific player styles or character personality types and kind of embrace that and go forward. Like I just loved, like you said before, I think the biggest takeaway for me was the free form, just exploration mm. of it. There is a moment that I will, won't forget where you're on the boardwalk, you find this dead body and you sort of like interrogate what happened. And it's discovered that he two days ago that he got so smashed and he had a kebab <laughs> and then he hit his head off the rail and it died. <laughs> oh, and yeah. you need to figure this out, figure out who he is and then ultimately deliver a kind of, you know, a message to his wife. You have to go to his wife's house and tell mm. her, that break the news that he's dead and it was so well handled and so good and it just because that woman turned out to be a random character you interacted with previously in the game as well like the fact that that came back around she became important Mm. and my previous interaction with her that I thought was just like a throwaway bit of banter where I literally hugged her before I knew any of this (laughs) said "Uh, your husband's missing I need to find him and she was like what are you talking about this is ridiculous and it kind of felt like silly it felt Mm -hmm. like a joke felt like I was trying too hard to be a good cop but then it turned out like that intuition was right and I then needed to break the news to it because I ultimately failed her. I just thought like, that's that's so good. And that's like 20 minutes of the whole game. That's yeah. like 20 minutes off to the side, not part of the main story. And mm-hmm. it's it, that's the level we're dealing with like throughout, I thought. Oh yeah, that's the thing that I would like. I, I think most people, whenever we, because we've started talking to like me and you were playing it, uh, like Andy Murray's playing it. We sort of started talking to more people about it, and nearly everyone has one of those little uh, interactions, one of those revelations where something just sticks with you because the script is the script is maybe the best script in gaming history, like maybe the best (laughs) written piece of interactive fiction in in gaming history. I just, I can't think of many other games that have such a personality, but all like, you know, such a sense of um, authority and confidence written into the script. Like they know exactly what they're going for. Um, And it is this just insane dissection of humanity, but also it's through the lens of a detective thriller, but also you can hang around and talk to people and find out all these different um, sociopolitical leanings and how do you approach the world as a person and the game reflects that and just... I don't know. I think that when I when I finished it, I was just I just kind of sat there being like, I actually don't know how to put any of this into words, which yeah. is maybe its biggest achievement because if you're gonna try and sum up life itself, it would take you a minute. 
And so like <laughs> one of the things that, because we talked about it most of this morning before we uh, recorded and stuff is that like, I've kind of struggled with some of the way the menus work and some of the ways that the, um, the some of the ways that it, it addresses your like political leanings in trophies, as well as some of the stuff that characters say to you. Um, and some of the things that come out through the trophies, I'm like, oh, it didn't want me to play that way. Or it's commenting on me as a, as a person, as a player. Um, but I think all of that is intentional. It's all to sort of put you in a specific mindset of like, oh my God, there's so much to this uh, mm-hmm. in this sort of life commentary kind of way. Um, and that in itself is pretty damn fascinating. Um, closing thoughts, Mr. JB. Uh, really good. Would recommend it, even if you don't like this type of game, because I convinced myself that I didn't like this type of game beforehand. <laughs> like I've not played any of the classic isometric RPGs outside of Fallout 1 and 2. So I, I, I was kind of prepared to maybe appreciate it, but not enjoy actively playing it. But I, I think you should just give it a try anyway, because it is it is good to play it in my opinion i think mm-hmm. it's like adapted well for consoles now that most of the bugs have been um, i was gonna say it's worth out. saying that everything's been fixed yeah. yes yeah everything's been fixed fortunately i didn't encounter the game breaking bugs that you encountered oh, but God. um i think i just got lucky in that front those have been fixed now i just think yeah um i would definitely try it because i feel like it's so big and it's so expansive that whatever you bring to it you'll find something for you in there you know mm-hmm. which to bring it all full circle one of the points that we made earlier on through all the big garby garby stuff was just that at the end of the day it's worth it if someone checks out your work so if someone or anyone is listening to us and checks out a bit of the old disco then we've also succeeded passing on the word of a brilliant game so hopefully you'll check it out for now though i've been scott tilford joined by josh brown goodbye this has been the just us league and we'll catch you next time <laughs> Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.